This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show, I'm Jake Cantor. Coming up this week, Tony Hall swings an axe at the BBC Sport and TV budgets, plus Lenny Henry again rattles cages on diversity. We'll also be joined by RDF's Teresa Watkins to look under the bonnet of Channel 4 show The Secret Life of Four, Five and Six-Year-Olds. Then it'll be on to some previews as this is Tottenham and the murder detectives get our verdict. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. So here at Talking TV Towers, the dream team, uh, we have Helen Veal, creative director at Outline Productions, and it's a big welcome back to Stephen D. Wright. Woo! Hooray! Yeah. Hello. I'm back. <laughs> Where have you been? At the BBC. <laughs> they won't let Wild. you talk to us while you're there, will they? <laughs> the BBC, you know, we don't, we don't do things like this. <laughs> talk about TV. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I know. We're not here to, you know cause trouble i've seen the news agenda it's all bbc that's stories. true actually yeah mm. how are you doing Helen? i'm very well thank you busy? i haven't been at the bbc always busy you're trying to get commissions from the bbc though presumably oh obviously <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> uh okay talking about commissions in the bbc should we go on to our, our oh, first let's... news item mm-hmm. uh, a grim news at the bbc where sport mm. and television are right in the crosshairs of plans to save 150 million pounds uh, because of the so-called iplayer loophole Sport has already begun cutting its cloth, and as for TV, entertainment, comedy and factual will bear the brunt of £12 million worth of cuts under a strategy dubbed Project Acorn by commissioners. Uh, drama, however, will be completely protected from Lord Hall's axe. Well, firstly, I would like to question the name Project Acorn. I mean, do we... They're ne- squirrelling away for they're savings. They're squirrelling away for savings, are they? <laughs> Just trying to add a little bit of coolness and kudos to this constant salami slicing by TV giving a little elements of it a little project it? name. Project so. Bacon, because it's nuts. Whoa. <laughs> there you go. There's my radical statement. It's like a more, yet more cost-cutting. And this weird kind of drama's to be protected by everything else, isn't it? It's like drama isn't better than the other genres. It might sound better at your Islington dinner parties, but it's not better. So I get a little bit offended by this sort of, oh, drama won't be touched. Because I've seen some bad dramas on the BBC. Uh, Particularly, I think comedy is something very important, very difficult to do, very expensive. Something that British producers are completely brilliant at. And I do find it a bit weird that we get some some scripted, the classy, Mm. intellectual scripted. It reminds me of that, what's that thing, The Name of the Rose? Um, medieval murder mystery Umberto where it, ultimately Umberto it turns out that the problem is head monk thinks laughing is vulgar and flies in the face of God's great design and I don't, I don't like it when that attitude is applied to judging the quality of what programme makers do and I find it across the sort of documentary genre if your documentary has the temerity to address aspects of life that aren't about death, destruction, prejudice and so on and so forth, then you need to get kicked off into a side room because you're not really demonstrating craft skills or mm. being serious. It's a little bit snod, snod, old-fashioned snobbery, like it. this it's sort of drama to be protected, other genres not. We're all in it together or we're not. You know, It's a very divisive thing to say drama will be ring-fenced, comedy, factual, whatever, entertainment won't be. People don't Do you think tune it says in about just Tony for Hall, drama. Then? I don't know. It's, it, it's, I, mean, it's, I don't think this is a TV person's language 
this sounds like a sort of politician's language that drama will be te- protected because that sounds the sort of thing that a, a politician it would does go, oh, sort that of slightly good. remind me of TV people don't don't talk in such snooty divisive terms they really don't you don't think of drama as being better or more special than anything else but politicians do people who don't watch much TV talk about drama and the news they don't talk about anything else it's like, like watch that telly, select watch committees at the commons are completely offended by the idea of a programme called Snog, Marry, Avoid which none of them has watched mm. but if you say it's drama dear it sounds again like the, the BBC super serving a particular yeah. set of people who could frankly afford to get their intellectual kicks elsewhere and the rest of the nation might not line up with them and might well actually prefer the BBC to keep doing some of the things it does so brilliantly like awesome comedy fantastic entertainment yeah. and a range of Strictly, factual right? you're, yeah. both, you're both non-scripted producers though well, if we had no, a drama but, producer but I'm fighting don't for the and, scripted comedy I don't make scripted comedy I, I, I make factual programmes that's in the chop and I haven't come out screaming about that particularly but I would say if they are slimy sizing fa- factual budgets I would want to make sure that it isn't let's say the serious, dark, authored documentary pieces at the expense of other ways of telling stories and engaging with the lives of our viewers that don't always want to sit down and watch Storyville or, you know... Well, we think uh, that music and art is going to be protected as well. There's a hint that BBC4 might be sacrificed in this... Uh, or something I saw in so it. Oh, not again. So this, sacrifice this... is an interesting word there, dear, isn't it? It might be sacrificed. <laughs> Ritually disemboweled, if you prefer. <laughs> so this... I, I do think that the audience of BBC4 are perfectly capable of finding a, a, a lot of the content that BBC4 provides elsewhere, a lot of it's tie up with cultural institutions and so on and so forth. BBC4 is wonderful, makes wonderful things, but it certainly makes the sorts of things that the people who sit in Westminster making judgments about the future of British broadcasting, they're oh, jolly good. No one's going to sneer at you at a dinner party for saying that you watched uh, a, a wonderful documentary. We think that might be next year, though, that BBC4 no. really gets... But to me, I'm a bit confused by this last, this latest announcement of cost-cutting. I thought we'd already been through this. The BBC is perpetually going through. Well, that's it. But it's sort of announced like, oh, and here's another, uh, you know. uh, So this is £150 whatever, because people are eschewing paying the licence fee, and instead getting their content from the BBC via catch-up on iPlayer. Oh, for which free. Means you, which means right. you don't need to pay the licence fee. And <sighs> the BBC reckons it has a £150 million shortfall in its finances as a result of that. Uh, and news this week that uh, Chancellor George Osborne failed to tell Tony Hall about, mm. about the new well, funding deal and the, and the, the over-75s licence fee three weeks before it was announced in Parliament. One of the sorts of things that BBC Factual does incredibly well is wildlife programmes. I've been watching that one off of new David Attenborough Hunted. The Hunt. The Hunt. Hunt. And this feels to me slightly like, that crocodile didn't tell the antelope he was going to bite him in the face. <laughs> of course he wouldn't. It's his job to bite the antelopes in the face. If you're going to organise a raid on somebody's funds, you don't ring them up two weeks before and say, by the way, just to let you know, we're coming. I've got a set of stockings <laughs> over my head already. The reporting of this in a way... I love the BBC. I, I'm a big fan of the licence fee. I think it's a vi- the BBC is a vital, cultural, socially cohesive institution. It's a very, very important thing that I'm passionate about. But those of us who are passionate about the BBC sort of need to wake up to the fact that the rest of the world might not see it that way and we mustn't come across as entitled and feel that anybody questioning anything about how we do what we do and what we do and how much it costs is a bit of a shit. It, it's not going to help us get to a place where we keep the future of the BBC secure, which is what I'm very, very, very keen for that to happen. We need to remember that the government's job is not to keep 
British broadcasting in exactly the same position as it is today. Okay, next up, after his landmark BAFTA lecture 18 months ago, Sir Lenny Henry returned to the Princess Anne Theatre for an update on diversity. Uh, Despite praising progress made by broadcasters thus far, he returned to his original plea, which is that ring fence money must be introduced for there to be meaningful progress on boosting BAME talent. Uh, Trouble is, the idea was immediately dismissed by a panel of broadcasting bigwigs, including Charlotte Moore. Uh, The BBC One controller said it could result in a ghettoising of diverse projects, adding the BBC wants to make sure that diversity becomes the mainstream. Helen, you were chairing this, weren't you? I was, yes. (laughs) Um, Neatly sideways into this. I agree with Charlotte Moore. I love Seleni. I think he's done an extraordinary job. I think the fact that there is a focus and attention on this issue now in a way that there hasn't been for a very, very long time, I think it's all to the good. But I personally am not in favour of ring-fenced money for precisely the reasons that Charlotte Moore described. Because what happens is you build a fence, you look inside the fence, and then that lets you off the hook for everything else that goes on outside of the fence. It sounds to me a little bit like bring back the multicultural department. Because however much you fund the multicultural department, its existence means nobody in any of the other departments has to get in line and get with the programme on making change across this agenda. I think, in, in a way, the, cha- the new Channel 4 system, where when you're doing an ed spec, you actually have to go, what am I putting on the telly and who is behind the camera making it? And unless you can tick those boxes, and everybody hates the idea of a tick box exercise, but if you fill in those boxes on the ed spec form, you don't get to the bit where you press submit that's going to release you the money to make that programme. So no ring fencing of money, all money, requires us to approach it through this particular set of filters, which... It is more broad than just ethnic minority representation, which is a very, very important issue, but it's about all the other aspects of diversity, disability, the role of women, sexual orientation and so on and so forth. Making sure that our production teams and our productions are showing the audience what Britain's really like. And, How are you and finding Britain that really challenge? Is. It's not that hard, is it? But also, as a producer, I'm essentially quite keen to get my hands on money. And so anything that you put in in between me and the final moment where the production is greenlit, I'm going to move heaven and earth to do it. People have to deliver on this agenda, whether or not it's they're waving the flag for it and think it's very important on a moral level, whether or not they recognise like I have, it's just good for your business and good for your creativity. I don't care why people do it if they just do it because they want the money. They'll have to do it, and they'll have to do it to get all money, not just money that's that, that's ring-fenced. But the BBC hasn't gone as far as Channel 4 on this, have they? No, they haven't yet, but it's only been 18 months since this whole agenda really got moving. I, I, I think you can't measure progress of things that are you know, so recently set in motion. It probably would help producers if all of the broadcasters had decided altogether on one approach. But I think that the, le- that the level of coordination between them is increasing. They're all joining in for the Project Diamond monitoring thing. You've got to know what's going on before you really, really know how to fix it. Although we know just by looking around that there are huge issues about what teams look like because they look mostly white and they look mostly male and they look overwhelmingly able-bodied and all those sorts of things that we're trying to address but some proper measurements about we'll be what we're delivering and what we're not delivering will be really, really yeah, helpful. Just quickly, I mean, we, we're having the same conversations we were 18 months ago, but mm. it does feel like progress has been made. It, uh, definitely in awareness terms. I think people now, now realise BAMES, diversity, whatever, is something you have to, to confront, you have to apply it, you have to be looking at it. So it's a bit disappointing to see that it doesn't feel like anything's moved on in terms of numbers. 
it's a really difficult one to look at because is it the number of BAME candidates coming through or is it the number of BAMEs at the top or is it BAME representation? It's a difficult one in a kind of generalisation, but certainly I would agree with Helen that the, 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 the awareness is there and I can't, I can't think, I don't think anybody's not thinking about it really when they're pitching uh, or, or when they're looking at production teams. I mean, it's just, it's a slow, slow process getting people through the system. You know, it takes at least 18 months to go from being a runner to a producer. That's fast. Five years is more likely. But I think the, um, you know? the statistics in the uh, Directors UK report, they are a bit shocking. They're a bit shocking overall in terms of the percentage of directors who are from ethnic minority communities being very small. But what's really shocking is within that, they're much, much, much more unemployed, much more underemployed than the non-BAME people on their list. So I'm always a little bit uneasy about the notion that the problem is, there is a problem about entry level across all sorts of diversity, people from working class backgrounds, all sorts of different issues about who thinks that that joining TV is available to them and, and and a career opportunity for them. But within TV, I don't think that we are actually giving the existing fully qualified, already trained up enough, thank you very much, very talented uh, ethnic minority um, producers and directors gigs because they're not in the loop, because they're not on the list, because we don't, if people that you don't know already, you know, you're, yeah. you're not reaching out to. Okay, I think it was John Mervais who said uh, commissioners need to open up their black books, their little black books, so hopefully that will happen in the near future. Uh, finally, in this episode, uh, our commission of the fortnight uh, broadcast revealed this week that BBC One is in talks to revive five classic comedies. If commissioned, they will be made in-house and form part of a season marking 60 years since Hancock's Half Hour became the first sitcom on British television. Uh, do you want the full list? Go on, then. Let's go through them. Come on. <laughs> so, on the agenda, The Good Life, Are You Being Served, Porridge, Up Pompeii, and Keeping Up Appearances. Any favourites among that lot? Well, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm waving the flag for them to be exhumed <laughs> and their corpses to be reanimated to dance on telly. I don't know. I feel a little uncomfortable about this, and it's sort of slightly coming on the back of the news that comedy isn't being given a ring fence. If I were a comedy producer, I might be feeling a little bit upset that today's creativity and today's talent isn't being given the respect for its craft excellence that it really, really, really deserves. I mean, it's strange because right now we're in an absolute comedy golden age. There's so many good comedies on all the, all the channels. The last thing anybody's particularly crying out for is a 30-year-old remake. Now, it doesn't mean it won't be good and it won't be funny and, it, you know, I'm, I mean... Why are they bringing back five? Why, you know, I mean that, you know, it's not like the over seventy fives are not watching TV and, and desperately want porridge back on. You know, yes, you could do a new version of porridge, you could do it, whatever, but it, it's a weird message, you know. And they might not do all of them. We're hmm, told. Okay, but also a really, really great comedy is a sort of alchemist's game, getting exactly the perfect ingredients of brilliant writers, brilliant script. Brilliant moment in time and a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cast. And I'm sure that all of those ingredients are available to do these remakes, but they won't smell or taste like the originals. And if you're going to go to the effort of getting brilliant scripts, brilliant casts, Mm. brilliant producing talent, could you not have a shot at something new? I don't know. I mean, I I, I watch every Saturday night, I'm watching, instead of X Factor, I'm watching Dad's Army on BBC Two. It's a 45 year old sitcom and I watch it every Saturday night 
And it's like, so you can You're see, one of the two million. I'm one of the, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> me, it's my Brilliant. fault. But you can see why the schedulers or whoever are pushing for these, oh, let's bring these back, these golden brands. But I noticed well, they're that doing that as well, aren't they? As yeah, well, that's it. It's a movie. But you're not tuning into any of the drama or high-end factual that was produced at the time that Dad's Army was produced, are you? Because some of these things perhaps don't stand the test of time in the way that really, really brilliant British comedy does. So, you know, harking back to the top of the news agenda again, I would call on the BBC to have some consideration and greater engagement with the great legacy of British comedy. Okay, And I'm not going to make any money out of that either, so there you are. (laughs) Sounds like a good message to end on. Uh, That's your news for this episode. Thanks to Helen and Stephen. Up next, while the parents are away, Channel 4's new series captures the kids coming out to play. Yes, secret life of four, five and six-year-olds, rigs a nursery with cameras and snoops on the social behaviour of three groups of children. The results of RDF's experiment, which started life as a pilot last year, are frequently enlightening, charming and funny. And we're only halfway through the first series. Executive producer Teresa Watkins will join us in a moment to discuss the six-part show. But first, a clip. Here, four-year-olds Lola, Tia and new girl Zoe are competing to create the best cake. I'm making a cake for my best friend Lola. I'm going to make a cake for my best friend Lola. I'm going to make a cake for you then. What? For you, I'm not. Well, fine, I'm making store cake for Lola. I'm going to put some strawberry on it. I'm putting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fruit on Zoe's. I'm going to make a little happy face on hers. I'm making butter cake for not you, for you, Layla. Ah, that's nice of you. Well, you're just a whole bunch of friends. <gasps> uh, welcome, Teresa. Oh, thank thanks, you. thanks for coming in. Uh, you're in, a, in the edit at the moment, is that right? You're, you're still finishing off the series? We're in the edit and up to our eyes. We've got seven shows all in different suites, so slightly frazzled at the moment. Is it quite an intensive edit? Well, it's been incredibly intensive because the trouble with working with children is you can only work in their school holidays. So we worked the whole of the summer holidays, but then Channel 4 said, well, we want this, we want this series on air before Christmas. And we said, well, you can't have that. It's seriously, you can only have it in January. And they said, sorry, no can do. We've got to have it before Christmas. So, yes, we're trying to do them all at once. So how have you resolved that then in, in terms of the, the, the strain on your resources and uh, just, time issues? Well, it's been a bit of an issue, but just by having the most amazing team of editors who are all self-starters, amazing edit producers and a series producer and a series director, Nick Brown and Emily uh, Lawson, who are just fantastic and who are across the whole it so um, we're juggling okay Uh, it feels like a good decision though because it's consolidating up to 3.2 million viewers isn't it oh we've been absolutely bowled over by the figures I mean the pilot was a surprise hit for Channel 4 but I had no confidence that the series would necessarily do the same business so it's absolutely thrilling that it's doing so well yeah so take us back to the beginning how did you how did you come up with the show well, it's a long, it's quite a long time ago. Um, I was horrified when I was thinking on the train coming here that it actually started back in 2012. And a colleague and I were really fascinated by the kind of 
tests that were done on children in the 60s and 70s, they were done a lot, to predict how children would turn out in future life. And one of the most famous that I think everybody's heard about is this marshmallow test. It's a test of delayed gratification. So if I was in a white coat and dressed like a scientist and I said, listen, you can have one marshmallow now or you can have two if you can hold off and wait for 10 minutes... That test was done on countless children and it was found to be a better predictor of those children's outcomes, like their salary, their um, academic performance, how they would perform in life than any intelligence test. So it started with science? Completely started with the science. Then we realised you can't actually make a programme that predicts how children are going to turn out because what if you have somebody and you think, yes, definitely a psychopath, definitely a criminal in the making. So (laughs) so we reined that back. And then um, what we found was a real-life model for the series in America, attached to Stanford University, actually. They have this nursery where all the professors would send their children and it's surrounded by games rooms where they do these so-called games that are actually little tests. And there are two-way and they observed them. So that once we found that, we went and filmed there, um, Channel 4 got really interested and they said, actually, this is potentially a series in the making. The challenge was that everybody said to us at the beginning, you can't make primetime entertain- uh, television out of children of this age. It just won't translate, it won't be funny. So we had to keep the faith through some difficult, stormy times at the beginning and there were a lot of naysayers, including at Channel 4. Not, I must say, my our commissioner, Sarah Ramson, who's always had faith, but um, other people higher up in Channel 4 had their doubts about it. So how did you go from that to so we were figuring given, out your environment? and yeah, you know, We were given a tiny amount of money and I said, what can we do with this? Because really we wanted to rig it. And as everybody knows, you can't do a rig on a um, small amount of money. But I said, look, I tell you what, let's make a radio programme but with pictures. We'll just put in a few uh, cameras, uh, manually held cameras, but we'll basically mic up every child. We'll find 10 children, we'll find a nursery, we'll set it up for two days, one weekend. And so I sat on a couple of tiny chairs with the scientists behind a kind of curtain while these 10 children met for the first time one weekend. And this was back in October 2012, or 13, I think. And within about 10 minutes, two of the boys were facing off like stags, head to head. And every, then the whole nursery went quiet. And it was spine tingling. Me and the scientists were just sitting there thinking, what? what's going on? Everything went quiet. And then all the children went out into the playground. And again, within about 20 minutes, they'd all ranked themselves against this one child who they were accusing of being a bully boy. And so it played out. And you just thought, wow, the whole law of the playground is laid bare. And what excited us was that it wasn't a million miles from what we see at work, what you see on the bus, what you see in the boardroom. In other words, it kind of reminded us of ourselves. And that felt very exciting. It's interesting you say about the, the sort of radio thing, because one of the things I wanted to ask you is that, it, you know, keeping track of the sound and making sure you're across that and doing the right thing, that must be quite technically challenging on this series, because I'd imagine they're trying to take their mics off all the time. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got some subtitles there helping, you know, the viewer with the communication. Well, you said it. Um, the sound for me is the biggest technical challenge. Uh, If you get that wrong, you lose everything because um, I don't know if you remember the standout line from the pilot that was much repeated on Twitter was, stop ringing me, Richard, you're not the dad. Now, we didn't even 
hear that at the time. We discovered that in the edit because we didn't have the luxury of listeners, which you'd have on a normal rig programme. So capturing every child's every conversation, every whisper, every gasp was crucial to this programme. But I have to say, as rigs go, it isn't one of the more complicated because if you think about it, you've got 10 or 12 children, they keep that same mic for the whole week. So unlike, say, educating, where they're swapping mics and they're changing the children that they're focusing on every day... By contrast, this was a piece of cake, but I can tell you it did not feel like that at the time. It doesn't look like it. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good to hear. (laughs) And what about the casting? That's obviously critical to this, this being a success, isn't it? Do you know what? I actually think it's the single most important thing about the show. Without good casting, we have no show. So our the first hirings I made were our so-called family producers. They're actually senior uh, casting producers, Amy Willits and Karen Brown. And they are maestros at this. And what we would do, we, we sent a shout out far and wide, but what we would do is hold what we called audition parties. And we'd literally invite 10 children who interested in us for some reason to a party at our offices and we'd play games like what's the time Mr Wolf or pass the parcel but we'd also have stations around the room where they would be doing drawing or playing with small toys or dressing up and then we'd also interview them and at the end it was proper consensus politics because there'd be about eight of us including runners and the family producers and the PD and the director and we'd all sit around a table and we'd literally ask the question who do you remember? Alfie. Do you remember Alfie? And if he got eight votes, he was in. I mean, then there was a small matter of taking them to Channel 4 and making a casting tape. But basically... Very democratic. It was terribly democratic. I can tell you, it didn't necessarily carry on like that. But the casting process, because what you're looking for is children who engage you. And it's not the obvious children necessarily. Like, you don't want all the extroverts. There was one child, Elliot, who just had this extraordinary engagement and quality of attention. And everyone on every station said, yeah, I want Elliot, I want Elliot, because he was so focused. So, um, and in the end, what you want in the play centre is a range. You don't want just all outgoing characters, because in the end, from the pilot, quite a few people's favourite character was Jessica, and she was the one who kind of pursued Skylar, and Skylar rejected her and rebuffed her. And I think I think the audience related to Jessica more than to Skylar, although people loved Skylar. Um, but I think, you know, if you see a need in someone, that's very relatable for adults. And in terms of securing consent, was that ever a challenge? Oh, my God. <laughs> was it ever a challenge? It is just unbelievable how thorough we have to be. By the time those families, those parents signed their child up, we had tried every way to basically talk them out of doing it. And we had to give them all the possible outcomes. At every turn, we were talking our parents through the pitfalls, supposing their child does something that would really upset them or that they don't like, supposing they're mean to another child or bullying, because we always were very clear that we want to show exactly what happens in the nursery. We're not claiming that we can tell the story of those children, but we can tell the story of what happens in that room. Do you show them footage before it goes out? Well, we were so helped this time by having the pilot, so they all could see 
the kind of, A, the way that we wanted to show their children and that it was responsible and that it had science supporting it, but also they could see that there was, you know, good behaviour, bad behaviour, people being tired, crying, there was even a slap round the face. But what we ensure is that we never say there is one moment when people sign a document. It's what we call ongoing consent and it's more of a conversation. Okay. It goes on throughout. And just finally, I mean, talk us through the fact that you've now developed it beyond the four-year-olds and um, talk about some of the progress you're making internationally as well. Well, the big change for us with the series was that suddenly we were asked to work not just with four-year-olds but with five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And it was quite a demanding order two programmes on fours, two fives, two sixes and a reunion show, um, particularly in the time frame. And I was a bit reluctant because I wanted to get a group of five-year-olds and do what we did before and maybe make three eps. But we had this great big order to make and actually it was fascinating. When you separate four-year-olds, five-year-olds and six-year-olds, you see the leaps of development they make between those two years, such that when the six-year-olds came for their first week, we were all hit between the eyes and they looked like teenagers to us. They looked so huge and actually slightly terrifying because they came in with all this swagger and attitude. They were talking about terrorist attacks and the news. They knew all the words of Taylor Swift songs. I mean, it was they were like adolescents. They were playing Kiss Chase to they were blue in the face. I mean, it was scary. They were scarily grown up. And we kind of felt, oh, my God, we don't have the tasks for them to do. But actually, it drew the best out of us because we had to think on our feet. And it was very exciting. And you ask about the international sales. It's been an idea that seems to connect internationally. And it's travelled already to Scandinavia, to Denmark. Um, We're talking to Sweden about it at the moment, to Belgium. They're making it in France. We're in talks with Italy and Spain. And we're talking to America at the moment as well. So I think because of the fact that it connects up with ourselves as adults, you don't just think, oh, how sweet, these are children. You think, oh, this is how we became the way we are. I'm that child or I'm that child. We all play that game all the time. That's me. (laughs) I think so. I I mean, it's a hard show to make. And to be honest, we're all surprised at how well it's doing. But I think that's the connection it makes. Okay, I could ask you so much more, but we're gonna have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Thank Uh, you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming in and all the best with the rest of the series, uh, which continues next Thursday at 8pm on Channel 4. Finally this episode, time to turn to some previews. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Stephen D. Wright and Helen Veal. Uh, and it's a bit of a gritty theme this week. Uh, we start with The Murder Detectives, uh, which will follow the twists and turns of a real investigation into a fatal stabbing in Bristol over the course of three consecutive nights on Channel 4. Uh, the film's a record series was produced over the course of 18 months and is played out like a drama, delving into the minds of the detectives involved. In this clip, the investigation team is talked through the CCTV footage they have of the murder. She goes out of vision and into the communal stairwell. She then sees a hooded man attacking Nicholas and shouts at him to stop. Nicholas is stabbed. He manages to run down the stairs. And then is captured on CCTV where he crosses Jamaica Street and in a short space of time collapses. Paramedics were unable to save his life. Some 20 seconds after Nicholas is run out of the building, 
you will then see our murderer. You'll see a red flash just on the top of his trousers as though it's tucked in and it does give the appearance of a red bandana. Red bandanas are associated with the blood gang. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I found this pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's mm. gripping. I found it a little une uneasy how much it does replicate the conventions of drama. But the opening s sequence is a sort of uh, voiceover, internal monologue. And I, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute, I'm, how am I going to feel about this? Is it crossing the line between observing and you know really stylizing things but the level of access they've got and clearly the sensitivity with which they've built up relationships both inside the police and with the families uh, concerned in the case gives you something absolutely extraordinary I think there's a slight sense that some of the, for me that some of the detectives in it have been watching detective programs <laughs> because I'm not entirely sure whether if they hadn't all watched the killing and whatnot whether or not after a difficult day coppers do tend to go at midnight to stand in their raincoat brooding by the crime scene tape I'm not really sure uh, so was, some of that maybe felt some a of that safe. some of it feel, feels but I don't I didn't feel at, at any sense that the filmmakers were manipulating things I feel rather more like the barrier between TV and drama and what we see and and the rest of the world they watch the cop shows too and uh, I thought it was quite interesting I, I was speaking to a friend last night a comedy writer uh, around why they decided to stage Life on Mars in exactly the year that they did. They staged it then because it was the year before the Sweeney came out. And if you were trying to do a really true depiction of what coppers were like, the following year they'd have all been going, leave it, and calling each other Carter and Regan and acting up uh, because they'd all watched the Sweeney. So I, did, I just wondered whether or not there was anybody who was, who'd gone a little Scandi-noir in, in, <laughs> in the team. But overall I just thought it was a beautiful, extraordinary, powerful... Great watch, Stephen. Do you agree? Yeah, it was it was incredibly interesting because this was a unremarkable murder that would have been a small paragraph in the paper and forgotten about the next day, and yet when they went into it and they go through the the narrative, you're shocked and appalled. And there's quite a few moments in this program where you you sort of gasp and you you know you, it, it is a grim watch occasionally and powerful, and yet. We've become very inured to this stuff now. You know, people are stabbed and and beaten up and die, and especially young guys. You know, who are who are constantly getting into kind of these types of fights or whatever. And they're 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 nothing nothing newsworthy. And yet, this program showed you how seriously the police took it and how dedicated they all were. I mean, that was the thing that really came across to me. There were a lot of people working a long long hours to try and get this crime solved, which the general populace outside of, of St Paul's in Bristol probably knew nothing about. So that was that was depressing because that really is a mirror to society. These are things happening all the time. And yet the individual stories are so powerful, so dramatic in their ordinariness, you know? It was so I thought it was a really, really clever thing for Channel Four to commission. A great thing to actually have made, but a horrible sort of depressing Thing to actually live through. I mean, it's you know the worst thing. And I and think I think Channel Four took a risk and allowed the production company to take a really, 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 really long time to forge the relationship with mm -hmm. the team before, I mean, like years before, months and months and months before they actually began following this case. They got the access. They worked and built those relationships, and then didn't turn a frame until they found the right story to follow. Yeah, I and didn't... I think I love a broadcaster that's free to take mm -hmm. those kinds of 
you know, creative decisions. And they're backing it, pay, playing they're, it on uh, three consecutive yeah. nights. Yeah. Well, the like end of the first episode, very... I was like, <gasps> yeah. you know, yeah. when it, yeah. and because I, I Although, and I was I was caught because I didn't realise it was a three parter. I thought it was I was going to get the classic. Oh, and then this happened, and then that. Oh, and I was sort of a bit like, oh my god! Without giving and it away was... a terrible spoiler, right at the end comes up the words "to be continued." Dot dot dot, which is such a drama convention, and mm. to see that in a documentary, it does feel very much like they are. Are we seeing this increasingly in factual though? That they're, you know, we, we've we've talked about, uh, you know, I've seen people on panels talking about the fact that factual is getting a bit left behind drama and the global explosion in drama that factual is having to take some of the tropes of drama and apply them in their own way. To be honest, this is more informed by serial, the podcast, than it is necessarily by drama. It's about how much detail. What's the right level of detail to choose to tell a story with? And actually, I think that's one of the points of contrast between this and the next show that we're going to talk about. In this one, they've obviously chosen that the interest, the drama, the grip, the thing is in the detail, really, really mm, being there for every shy. little moment, the minutiae. And I think that pays off very, very powerfully in, in the way the storytelling works. OK, The Murder Detectives launches on the 30th of November at 9pm on Channel 4. Uh, our next preview is CTVC's BBC Two series, This is Tottenham, uh, which follows the work of MP David Lammy in one of London's most controversial suburbs. Uh, in this moment from the first of two episodes... Uh, Ruth is about to meet the police over the disappearance of her son. Uh, trouble is, she has a deep mistrust of authority. My record, when I was nine, robbery, nicking a bike, all the way through absconding, assault on the police because I didn't want to be putting back in care to a place that was raping and abusing me, so I had no choice, it was either that or that. And I believe every time they bring up my record or our name, they go straight to that and that is scum. That's how they see it, that's how they see me, and that's how I'm portrayed. And that's how exactly I was treated and have been treated ever since. They're not saying that, seeing the, how I've dug myself out of that on my own, how I've achieved and brought three good, fine men up and got to the point I've got to. They're not seeing that, they just see I'm damaged goods, lost calls, and that is the nitty gritty of it. This one story could have been the whole of Detectives, maybe. Mm. <laughs> oh no, this was yeah. full of uh, full of story, full of things I and mean, it was overwhelming really how much was stuff too is coming much. in and i think that was one of the things that, that struck me was I've, I've always suspected david lammy to be a bit of a sort of attention seeking politician and then i suddenly had to realize this guy's quite hard working he's very hard working in fact and it made me think again these are stories that we don't see often on tv and they're going on all the time we, we again we've become we live in a different world to, to most of these people who are struggling with life all the time and i thought it was a remarkable sort of film because we've forgotten all these stories we've forgotten this kind of real life grimness that people are going through that aren't mentally ill or homeless or whatever they're just ordinary people with bad luck as David Lammy says in one uh, bit and I thought it was incredibly interesting for that and I had it started to make me sort of reappraise how I look at politicians because if you do read the papers politicians are now treated as sort of as jokes, joke figures that you laugh at. And, and this is the real work they're doing. They're actually helping people. They've got constant, you know, it's that nightmare, uh, never-ending battle of trying to fight uh, problems and administration and lack of money and homelessness. And, and it was kind of, it was, it was shocking to me in that respect and, and incredibly powerful as, as a result. 
I found the sort of framing of it through, uh, essentially the way into the documentary is mostly it's filmed in David Lammy's constituency surgery with constituents coming in. And actually I found that as an entry point into the stories slightly put me off and made me a little bit unsure how to follow it all through. A, a contrast with the murder detectives documentary, the story of the fate of a young black man in the Tottenham area is a very big part of it, and that was his mother who just heard on the clip. We don't see enough of the story to really, really understand what's actually gone on, and there's lots of implications and suggestions about what may have gone on that the programme is asking us to make some, some, some conclusions about that I feel uncomfortable being asked to make those conclusions about in the absence of more of the story. So we only see these stories through this little chink in the window but and I absolutely appreciate that getting a chink in the window mm. of some of the sort of desperate dignity with which people who are hard up struggle to make decent lives as opposed to dodgy benefit robbers and all that malarkey that we we often get about people who are not affluent so I think it, it, it's done a very very good job at opening up that world and doing so in a way that frames people uh, with a little I, more dignity than perhaps we, we always see them. But there's something about that framing of the storytelling that that makes that, that's trying to push you to some conclusions that I don't feel comfortable about that direction because you're only seeing it. Do you think the stories could have been given greater time to breathe then? Can you really tell a story which is essentially an accusation about racism and ineptitude in the police when the only encounters that you see are the moments that are the accusations about racism and ineptitude in the police? Now, I've got no evidence at all about what the police did. We don't know what the police did in this particular case, but we only ever see the moments where they're being accused of essentially fomenting community strife and disrespecting this woman because of judgments about her background and who she is. That might be true, but we're not given enough of a view of it to know whether it's true or not. We're just seeing these moments. This family's obviously been treated very badly and a very, very sad thing has happened to them. But when you're just getting a little glimpse here and a little glimpse there of what is a complicated story, a very similar story potentially to the one that we've seen explored in a different way in the Channel 4 piece. Do you think it's a bit unfortunate, though, that we've, we've watched Possibly. the detectives and now we're watching this? But I would still having that juxtaposition is maybe not... But I would still feel the same. This in the same Essentially, light. it would be like trying to look at my HR record by only filming the moments when I'm called in to be disciplined. And you wouldn't then see all the other bits when I'm not called in to be disciplined. What about your HR well, record? Your Stephen? HR record could very much... That's a whole uh, TV programme in itself. Three part series to be series. continued. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I slightly disagree. I think that the confusion and the scraps of information and the the the, the slightly jarring kind of, uh, what's the word, perspectives is part of what he's dealing with on, on a second-by-second basis. He's having people who are mad coming in and talking to him about parking. Then he's got somebody who comes in with a genuine grievance. Then he's got something where he actually changes the law. Then he's got... Some, and it never stops. And to me, that, that sort of deliberate confusion of what you're dealing with every five minutes, you could see him. Sometimes he's very engaged and sometimes he just wants him out of the room. It, to me, it felt incredibly honest and I felt a lot of sympathy for him because he's struggling. And that you don't often see with an MP who's media savvy and literate. Um, so I think that that, that, that I mean, I, I, I certainly understand what you're talking about. And it could have, we could have had a bit more. But it, that effect, the kaleidoscope of human 
life. All human life is there, and it's coming in every. So it's putting minutes. us in David Lammy's shoes. That's almost. to me. That's so I. Th- so I think I could. I could appreciate that. You know, it, it was confusing. It was sort of. Uh, disturbing, but then he's having to deal with it, and then every two seconds it's something else, and it's that—that's what those people are like. They are constantly making decisions, and you know he's got a huge back office that are dealing with it, but we're only seeing him. We're, we're going to see this through his eyes, really, and I thought it was uh, really interesting for that. Okay, this is Tottenham launches on the second of December on BBC Two. Two shows well worth watching, hey. Uh, that's your lot for this episode. Thanks to my guests, Teresa Watkins, Steam D. Wright and Helen Veal. Thanks as always to you lot for listening as well. We couldn't do it without you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 